Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Relax Running Podcast. Tyson Popplestone here, coming at you from Central Point in Oregon, United States. I, uh, I'm looking out the window at the moment. Aussies, I don't want to rub it in. I've just jumped back into summer. I'm back working on my tan. I'm here for six weeks, catching up with family. So sorry I missed last week. I was on the plane and I, uh, I didn't have an episode up my sleeve, unfortunately. So I'm right back into it now. And today's a great episode to get back into with Angelo Gingerelli. But before we get into it, let me remind you, uh, if you're looking for a running coach, I am taking on personal running coaching clients right now. So if you're anywhere in the world, I've got athletes in New Zealand, I've got athletes in the USA, I've got athletes in Australia. If you're interested, wherever you are, get in touch, jump over to relaxrunning.com and click on the coaching tab to find out more. Shoot me an email if you've got any specific questions and you and I will line up a Zoom call for 20 minutes, half an hour, talk about what it is you're trying to achieve, what your goals are. Where you're trying to improve, I'd be uh, I'd be more than happy to work together one on one with you to to help you with your running goals. So if that's you, make sure you check out that link. Also, quick reminder: we have eight spots left for the relaxed running camp taking place at Falls Creek, Victoria, in Australia in December this year. So if you want to find out more about that, it's a week of. Uh, running training it's a week of strength mobility conditioning it's a good social week all in australia's most this is my opinion and i think many athletes would agree australia's most beautiful altitude training location most beautiful training location i will say so if you haven't been to falls creek you'd like to join me and 10 other athletes up there would love to have you um so make sure just to seal your spot that you jump across to relaxrunning.com click on camps and clinics you'll see it there but that's enough about that Today we have strength and conditioning coach and uh, Angelo Gingerelli on the podcast. He's coming at us. I accidentally said San Jose later in the podcast. He's in New Jersey. Um, you're gonna love his accent. This is a uh, this is a this is a real East Coast accent. I love talking to him more than just the way he sounds when he talks. Is the content of what he says when he talks. He's got a great understanding of the importance of strength and conditioning in distance runners and gives some real practical guidance on how to structure it. So make sure you uh, send him a bit of love. I've, I've put a couple of links in the show notes if you want to see those. Um, but in the meantime, hey, enjoy this conversation with myself and Angelo Gingerelli. <laughs> Dude, thanks so much for coming on. It's uh, it, it's good to to see your face here. As I said before, I hit record. I've I've spent a little bit of time on your Instagram and listened to a couple of other running podcasts with you in it. And uh, and one of the most interesting questions, or one of the most common questions that seems to come up in the world of running, is about strength and uh, endurance training. Because I, I I still feel it's a little bit of a a misunderstood topic. But man, before we get into all of that, I thought it might just be nice for for you to give the listeners a, a little bit of an overview of, of who you are and, and what specifically you do. Great, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, big fan of the show. Glad you asked me to come on. I've been listening for a while. I love the information you're putting out there. And uh, it's really cool that, you know, we have very similar ideas on resistance training for endurance athletes. And we're on literally the other side of the world from each other, right? So I live right now in the northeastern part of New Jersey, right outside New York City. And I grew up there. I moved around the country a little bit in my 20s as a strength and conditioning coach at a couple different universities. And then I've been at Seton Hall University, which is about seven miles from Midtown Manhattan on the New Jersey side of the river since 2005. So I'm almost 20 years in one place, uh, which is very unheard of in the college strength and conditioning world, at least in America. But I found a good place for me. And then uh, a couple of years ago, me and Dr. RJ Borgia, we were running together, we were lifting together, and we kind of got this idea simultaneously that a lot of runners don't lift weights, right? 
and they're getting injured all the time. We're getting worse as they get older. And we were not seeing that. We're getting our mid to late thirties. We're getting faster, putting up better marathon times, not getting injured. And she's like, well, people are asking us kind of the quote unquote secret to our success. Part of that secret, if you will, was definitely the lifting weights and resistance training. So that kind of led us to pitching the book to a bunch of different publishers. Uh, long story short, three years later, we had a book come out on Bloomsbury Publishing and available all around the world. And kind of that idea, if you're already training and you're either, I know your podcast is you know, mostly runners, but there's also parts of the book dedicated to triathletes and swimmers and cyclists. And the idea of like, you're already doing this kind of training. How does that how can we put the fix this one little piece of the puzzle that might be the piece you need to put in place to take the next step, right? Mm. How do you go from just finishing a marathon to putting a PR on the board at a marathon? How do you go to just being happy to get a medal to being on the podium at the end of it and hopefully have a longer, healthier, more productive career? I see a lot of kids in, you know, caught at 22, 25, they love running. They love physical activity. They get hurt. They kind of lose love for it, get out of shape. Their bodies doesn't feel the way it used to. They stop being active. So your idea is like, let's, Let's keep doing this for as long as you can. We're looking to be involved in something as cool as marathons, triathlons, open water swims, whatever your passion might be. Let's do it till 67 years old and have this be a great part of our life until we hopefully, you know, our body tells us it's time to stop when we're in our 80s, not when we're in our 30s. You know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. It's so interesting. In a sport that I've been involved in for, for nearly 25 years now, one of the things that comes up in so many conversations with the athletes that I'm coaching, but also just generic questions and general questions that come through to the Relax Running Instagram page is, a, a, you know, a personal hero, an interview about strength training. And one of the major fears is, hey, I thought as a distance runner, we just had to be skinny and won't uh, lifting heavy weights just put a whole heap of size on and make our, our job more difficult rather than actually making our life easier just as a little bit of a foundation i thought would address one that one right at the get-go because it's uh i feel like it's on the tip of every distance runner's tongue i i think one a couple ways you want to attack that question when you get it or not attack but answer that question when you get it uh number one the overwhelming majority of men and women on the planet don't have the genetics to get big and jacked and look at the incredible hole. Is that fair to say? Without <laughs> steroids, like I, I spent the first 10, I spent the first 10, 15 years of my athletic career from probably middle of high school till about 30, powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting, trying to get as big and strong as I could. And I couldn't do it. I was still just a regular size guy that was pretty strong, right? So the idea of like if you're running 20 plus miles a week and you, you go to the gym a couple of times, you coming out of there looking like one of the Avengers is probably not gonna happen, right? <laughs> So what I say all the time is our body gets better when we tax and ask you to do different things. So as runners, a lot of we run more miles, we run faster miles. We, you know, there's various ways to manipulate that running, but the weight room isn't just stack 45s on the end of a bar and squat and deadlift. That's one way to train. It's probably not the best way for an endurance athlete to train. So it might be, it's not, it might be moving down the dumbbell rack a couple notches, going from 20s to 25s, or picking up a slightly heavier kettlebell, or moving the pin down on the weight stack a little bit on a machine movement, right? But I think the idea of the, the progressive overload that makes us better runners is also true in the weight room, right? But in the same token of you're not going to go for a couple of runs and break the world record in the marathon, you're not going to the, you're not going to go to the gym a couple times and become Mr. and Mrs. Olympia, right? Mm. I think and one thing I think that the stigma around, at least in the United States, and in Australia might be a little bit different, but in America, we have this thing where most strength and distance coaches, most personal trainers get introduced to the world, that world of training, because they love the weight room, love lifting weights. They didn't love running, 
right? So you got the running world, you got the gym world, and they're completely separate. And it's very mm-hmm. I put you on the list of so many in the world that's doing a great job of putting them together. I think I'm doing a decent job as well. That it doesn't have to be either or. It can be and. I lift weights and I run, and they help each other. And I think that's – I think – our world, guys like us, we get it. We understand that, right? Mm-hmm. But I think we got to try to preach that gospel to more and more people. And I think in a generation from now, that's maybe a little better because of shows like yours. Yeah, that's no, a, it's a really good point. You said something just there that I thought was interesting, and I'm going to delve a little bit deeper into it. You said that, uh, and I've made this mistake many times in, in my career, and I also testify to the fact that now I'm not a competitive runner. Uh, also, like you, I'm having trouble looking like anyone from the Avengers, despite how much I lift. I think I got to up the, the eating game of my performance. But but you're right. When we speak about strength training, uh, so many of us think, all right, go into the gym and just chuck a, a couple more 45s on to steal your words. But I, I have been doing that fairly consistently now. And, and recently, I uh, had a friend of mine, and she's been on the podcast a couple of times. She's a physiotherapist and also a Pilates instructor. And she, she gave me an invite to, to come on to one of her running Pilates sessions. And I came in thinking, mate, I can't wait to show her, show her how strong I am. I can't wait to show off my, uh, my gym routine. And the way that my muscles got attacked, it, it humbled me so quickly and blew my mind as to, despite being so consistent in the gym, how many points of weakness I still had, which needed to be targeted from another angle. So, so I guess I say all that to, to ask the question, if you've got a bit of a general view or a bit of an overview or, or just some generic advice to people who are thinking, all right, I want to develop a strength routine. I want to implement it into my running, but I've heard that people do yoga and people do Pilates. And then there's also gym. Like how do you mend all of those areas of strength together to make sure that it's, it's not only helpful, but beneficial to, you know, the goals that you're trying to achieve? I think that's a great question. Obviously, we, I get it a lot. So what I always tell people is, and I think this, this is a thing, if you look at team sports in general, right? If you play rugby, if you play baseball, if you play basketball, there's very clear times of the year, right? There's an in-season, there's a preseason, there's an off-season, and it's kind of clear what your training should be for each one, right? And I think a lot of times as endurance athletes, we don't look at the year that way. And I think it will be better in some extent to break the year down into – this is my off season where maybe I'm running, I'm getting some miles in, but my big race is eight months away. Maybe, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. We got preseason or building a base of our mileage. Then you got your peak miles time of the year. And then you got your taper right before your big events. So I just tell people is if you start, we'll call it in quotes, working out and you're running, you're lifting, you're doing yoga, you're doing Pilates and you feel terrible because you went from being completely sedentary to way too overactive. You're not going to stick with that, right? Mm-hmm. So I think endurance athletes look at that off season. So for example, using New York City Marathon as an example in the United States, which is in November, right? The way I look at my year is January, February, March, and April is kind of my quote unquote off season. I'm still running. I'm getting some miles in, but I'm more focused on attacking my flexibility, my mobility, and putting some strength and size on. And that's the time of year I try new exercises. I try new things. I try to put some weight on the ball and get actually stronger. Then as that summer starts to approach, I start running more and more miles. That's kind of like my preseason and my building a base period, if you will. Yeah. And I'm still lifting. But my focus turns to get my miles in, get my times good, being happy with my long runs. But I'm still going to the gym. And what I do during that time of the year is we recommend in the book is, let's say you got to be pretty good at barbell back squats in your offseason, right? You got good at it. You feel good. Your core looks good. Your technique looks good. But they're making you sore. Because if you lift enough weight, you should be a little sore. Well, now when the runs take precedent during your building and base, your peak mileage period, maybe that barbell back squat becomes a med ball squat or a goblet squat or some other kind of movement that gets that motor pattern but isn't quite as taxing. And they kind of work through that throughout the year. 
I think the biggest thing is to you know periodize your training where when you're when your runs are the most important thing and that race is coming up, your resistance training isn't hurting that, right? Yeah. And then making some times of the year where you got to dedicate to your body to get bigger and stronger. And if the runs are a little slow because you're a little sore, a little banged up, you got to kind of be okay with that because you look at the bigger picture and say, I'm going to, this is going to pay off a month or two from now, not tomorrow. Yeah. And that's kind of the bigger thing. Look at the big picture, look at the yearly planning and periodize the year and pick and choose when's the right time for you to go a little heavier. And when's the right time to pull it back a little bit and think about overall athletic development over the long term. Because one thing I see a lot of people I deal with is they want to run a marathon on March 31st, whatever it might be. And they have very little vision what happens on April 1st when the marathon's over, right? Mm-hmm. They want to get their life down in total. And my thing is, run a marathon, run an ultra, do a triathlon, whatever your goal is, you should be incredibly happy with yourself if you do that. You have a party, put it on Instagram, make a TikTok video, it's all great. Right? <laughs> but a day or two after, you should feel kind of good enough start thinking about your next thing, right? If you finish a season or a race or an event so mentally, emotionally, and physically drained from it, in my opinion, you've made a mistake somewhere in your training, your nutrition, your recovery, whatever it is, because we should be training to get better and feel better and move better throughout our training progressions. And I think there's too much in the endurance world of people not doing that, right? They finish their season just emaciated and weak and feeling terrible about the world and you got to work hard and you got to get the miles in you got to put the you got to get it all in but i think at the end of it ideally we're training to get better not worse so when you finish that season you feel better about yourself and not like you just can't wait for it to be over and Uh, i think lack of strength is part of the thing that makes people end those training periods so poorly that's a really that's a really great point man after my own heart I, i love the idea not only with my own running uh, especially when I was competing at a higher level. But with the athletes that I'm coaching now, one of the first things I try and do is is just get a bit of an understanding of, okay, what exactly are you trying to achieve? Because uh, man, I've spent enough time with uh, Americans and, and working with American athletes now to see that I think the mindset around training, whether you're in you know Europe, United States or Australia, distance runners, we're very good at doing more and more and more and more. And uh, I think universally almost, I'm pretty confident to say is what we suck at doing is is scheduling a little bit of downtime, scheduling, all right, what is it that we're actually trying to achieve and where does rest fit into that? I always like to say, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this from a strength perspective as well, but uh, I, I like to approach our big races like a boxer would approach a fight in the sense that throughout the year, I like a, a general base fitness for the athletes. I don't like any of them getting too out of shape. Um, but then say 12, 16 weeks out from a marathon, we'll start to get very specific. We'll start to refine it. We'll really start to tailor that training towards the particular event. And it really, it really interests me, I guess, more at a community level, uh, but it really surprises me. I should say how little focus I think a lot of athletes have on that just to sort of echo what you said, we're great at, um, you know, just getting out there and doing more and more and more, but maybe, uh, that lack of clarity is, is something which really hampers us. And, and from a strength perspective, you're right. It's, you, you don't want to be starting a, a brand new strength routine a week out from a marathon. So, um, I say all that to ask the question, if, if you have a new athlete come to you, and I know this is probably a difficult question to answer based on the fact that so many different levels of athlete are going to be working with you. But, uh, you know, I, I would say the average listener to this podcast is a, a, a little bit of a newer athlete, maybe involved in the sport for six to six months to two or three years. And, and this gym idea, like this strength idea is something that's relatively new to them. Where do you start the conversation with an athlete like that who wants to, you know, take their running to a new level and look at strength as a potential way to, to start doing that? 
Great question, man. Uh, two things. Just to go back to one thing you said a little earlier about rest and recovery. I always say in my profession, I've been a strength coach for over 20 years. And the two biggest learning experiences I've had after I graduated school, so taking school and certification and putting them to the side, was in 2011, so about 11 years in the profession, I ran my first marathon, right? And all of a sudden, I understood so much more about how an endurance athlete's body works by doing it myself. Because my whole world was in the, the strength side of things for so long. And that just opened my eyes to a whole different world. And I'm super happy I was able to do that 12 years ago, whatever it is. The second thing I did in 2016, I ran my second marathon, right? And it was the same course, the same race at the Jersey Shore. But my training, I thought, went terribly because I had to miss a bunch of long runs. I had the flu one weekend. I, it, just, it didn't go well in my mind, right? So I ran about 100 less miles in the weeks leading up to the race than I did five years earlier, right? I beat my previous personal best by just about 15 minutes. And that's when I to realize that we, were, we all know, every coach, every trainer, every you know, PhD knows more isn't always better. But until I saw that myself in my body, I didn't really understand it. And that kind of led to my idea the last five or six years of you got to run. You got to get your miles in. But it isn't always if 80 miles is good, 90 miles is better. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've been a better marathoner since then, despite getting older. Once I kind of cracked that code a little bit of it's not it doesn't have to always be more and more and more. Right. So go back to the second part of that question on the new person coming into, into the gym or the facility. First thing I think we would do is do some very baseline movement screen type stuff, right? Can they do a squat? Can they do a lunge? Can they hinge at their hips? Can they do any, how's their upper body strength? And let's keep it real. If we're talking about a typical endurance athlete, right? We're going to say they probably cannot do a great push-up or at least not 10 in a row. They probably can't do any good pull-ups. Use a sweeping generalization, right? Their squats and lunges are going to look pretty bad and their hip hinge activating their glutes and hamstring is they're not even going to understand the concept of that the first day in the gym, right? <laughs> I, I love being an endurance athlete. I love being around endurance athletes. But if you've never trained like that before, there's no reason you would really know that stuff, right? So I think the first thing we would do is look at the movements they're really having trouble with. And I would engage them or teach them some kind of dynamic warm-up to activate and mobilize those muscles and joints and get their body moving correctly, right? I think one reason why endurance athletes get turned off to the gym a lot of times is – they see a guy squatting with 45s on the bar and doing lunges with 50-pound dumbbells, and, and they, I can never do that. Well, no, you can't do it today. You might be able to do it in the future, but that's got to start, in my opinion, with a generalized warm-up, you know, raise your heart rate, your core body temperature, and your respiration rate, and then it's a body weight squat for maybe a while, right? It's a body weight lunge. It's starting to work on maybe an eccentric push-up, an eccentric pull-up, trying to get your body moving properly and your body to learn central nervous system-wise how to do those very basic core movements, and then it would take a couple weeks doing that, and now we can add in some dumbbells, some kettlebells, maybe a barbell and some plates if they if they progress pretty quickly, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I think the... Uh, Part of the problem is people have this one idea of what weight training is, and they don't realize nobody starts with what we see on Instagram and TikTok, right? We start with a dynamic warm-up and getting our body moving properly, and then we find ways to add resistance and get better at it and build some muscle and some strength. And the other thing that's outlined in the book, we kind of identified six core exercises or motor patterns we think everybody should do. And then we'll kind of got to start getting better at those six motor patterns. And then we can add everything else from there, right? So we identified the squat, the lunge, the hip hinge, the hip bridge, and then the push, upper body push, upper body pull as things we think everybody could benefit from, right? So I would get really good at those six exercises. And then we identified 
progressions or regressions for each one. Because in my opinion, I mean, it's, you know, barbell back squats are great exercise. If you know how to do it and your body's moving right and you're not injured. So if all those things are not in play, can we regress that? Can we make it a goblet squat, a med ball squat, a box squat? There's a million ways to skin that cat. We're still doing that motor pattern, but not just crushing ourselves day after day after day. Or there's days you walk in the gym and you feel great. Can that barbell back squat become a front squat, an overhead squat? things that are actually harder, right? Can we do more sets? There's ways to manipulate that. Um, I think the key is get good at those six foundation exercises and then fit, and if that's your main course of your meal, and then figure out what auxiliary exercises or side dishes, appetizers, desserts, we need to attach to that main dish to make a perfect meal. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I, I really like the way you put that. So you've got your foundation in those six movements and then for each, so that can pretty much benefit every individual, regardless of what level it is that they're performing at. But then on top of that, say if a particular athlete had, you know, a little bit more tension in their back or a little bit more tightness in their hamstrings, you can start to really address that on top of it just to make sure they're, they're getting the whole package. Is that right? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think starting with the basics is the most important thing. And then getting good at those basics. And if you, I mean, I used, I used the meal cliche once already. I'm going to go with the house cliche next. I'm sure everybody's heard it before. But those six exercises are in your foundation. Then you got to build four, one, four, two, four, three on top of that foundation. And I think if you don't have a good foundation, you can't do those six exercises well, that's in a real shaky house. So yeah. I think, and I think the important thing is, as it mentioned, harder for coaches and some of our clients, we need to stress how important is to get good at those exercises. And I don't think it's really a cookie cutter thing to say, on week one, you should be doing exercise A, B, and C. And then week two, everybody progresses to D, E, and F. Mm. I think that individualizes a little bit too. If you're still struggling with A, B, and C, we got might stay there a month, right? Because um, people are so different. I, and to some extent, I would say starting younger is a better decision. The younger you try to teach them something, generally the better they pick it up, right? Um, the older people are, the more set their bodies in their ways, the harder it is to break those bad habits. But in general, I don't think it's ever too late to start, but realize if you're starting resistance training at 40 versus 20, you might have to take a little more time through your progressions to get your body moving properly just for a bunch of reasons that we all know that happens as we age versus if you started when you were younger. Yeah, no, really nicely said. I, I often say that, that consistency is the one thing that I think is often overlooked in the world of running. It's amazing how how, well, I mean, we spoke about our stand-up comedy correlations before we hit record, and the same is true in the running world, that consistency seems to reward most runners. Yet you look at someone who's been doing it, you know, fairly consistently for, for 10 or 15 years, and it's hard to argue with the results that they're putting on the board. And I know firsthand, uh, even, with a, even with a less structure, though I'm, I'm really trying to improve this area of my life, uh, my gym routine, um, you know, for a long time, I was just going in and lifting weights and not not a whole heap of structure or thought behind it, apart from trying to make my pecs look a bit bigger. <laughs> but even even with that, I was I was amazed at how, you know, six months of consistency and then a few months away, I, I you know, my gym shut down during COVID and I did a lot of body weight workout. Uh, body weight workouts but then when I got back to the the actual gym I was amazed at you know just how uh, how much strength I, I felt I had lost but more than that how quickly that strength came back and uh, I, I can only put down that uh, that down to the consistency of a couple of years 
before that. But man, you're, uh, I want to, I want to just sort of dig into this, these six movements a little bit more. And I guess as a, as an entry into those particular six movements, I was curious to know, a lot of us are living quite sedentary lifestyles, whether it's at work or um, home, you know, a lot of us are sitting down for eight hours a day. I know my mum works in a hospital and, and she's on her bum for six or seven hours a day. And uh, I, I mean, I've seen a few stand up desks and, and things like that coming into the equation uh, with something like that. Is there any sort of general advice to the person working an office job who's also trying to improve their range of movement or their flexibility or their strength um, that they can implement into their day to actually give them a better foundation to start the, the lifting and the strength work from? Right. That's a good question. I think the key with that kind of stuff is that you hit the nail on the head is consistency, right? Mm. So every time you go to the gym, do some kind of mobility work, Figure out where you need it the most and dedicate your time there, right? It might be your hips. It might be your ankles. It's, that's kind of individualized. And I would say try to get it before or after your runs as well, right? So if you're an office person that maybe you run five days a week and lift weights two times a week, if you do some kind of flexibility and mobility training you know, seven times a week, you're going to see a result after a couple of months, right? Um, and the other thing I think that sedentary lifestyle has done to us is it's really destroyed our core strength and our posture to a large extent, right? So I think if you sit down, you know, eight, nine hours a day, every time you're in a gym, every time you're doing physical activity, let's do some core work and let's do some, some postural shoulder girdle stuff to get our upper body in the right position to not be getting steadily more hunched over as we get older and get basically shorter and having our body work less efficiently as we get older. It's, gonna, it's going to happen anyway. It happened to our grandparents. It's going to happen to us quicker because we sit down more than our grandparents sat down. But can we can we be the first generation to maybe start to reverse that, right? Mm. You know, I'm not I'm not naive. I don't think you could undo 10 hours of sedentary with 15 minutes of mobility work. But if you do 15 minutes every day, the cumulative effect of that adds up, right? And then the other thing I would just say, if you can be conscious of the way you're moving day to day, I think that helps, right? If you can sit upright in the office chair and type properly on a computer and look at ergonomics and the way you move from the computer to the refrigerator to the couch kind of thing. And just think about having good posture, good movement mechanics all the time. That'll become like your second nature and your body will move better long, you know, for a longer period of your life, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Really well said. How many times generally do you try and encourage your athletes to be in the gym? We look at generally uh, depending on the time of year, but ideally two real gym sessions a week, and maybe one additional body weight, mobility, flexibility type session, almost like a recovery from the long run of the week kind of day. Um, we can get some work in when we realize you're sore. One thing I've, I've been saying all year is that if you're an endurance athlete for a sweeping generalization, you deal with two things every day of your life. One, too little time, because doing endurance athlete, being an endurance sport athlete takes a lot of time, right? Mm -hmm. Secondarily, you deal with too much fatigue, because running a lot of miles, biking a lot of miles, swimming a lot of meters – is really hard in your body, right? So we kind of put our workouts together to be about 40 minutes twice a week with some other optional stuff built in around it, right? Because we, are, if everybody was a professional athlete and everybody could do all the rest recovery time they needed and they could run in the morning, come back to the gym in the afternoon and stay in there for two hours, training would be very easy to prescribe, right? Mm -hmm. In the world we live in, we're not dealing with, at least I'm not dealing with a lot of professional athletes. Right? I'm dealing with a lot of people that are training for a couple events a year with a full-time job, maybe another night job or side hustle, kids, spouses, graduate school at night, all these other things, you know, plenty of time. So mine's like, all right, I understand you can't give me three hours a week for lifting weights, but can you give me, let's say, 70, 80 minutes total and let me help you make the most of it? Mm. 
Yeah, that's that's a really good point because I think one of the uh, off-putting factors when you're getting started with anything is looking at people who are who are sort of way ahead of you in terms of their progress and in terms of their their strength or speed or whatever it might be, and thinking, okay, well, I have to be able to do you know the the same amount of work, the same amount of weight. Uh, I'm trying to tap into that general mindset of a of a distance runner here who's very competitive. You know, as a sweeping as a sweeping generalization to steal your phrase. Right. And the biggest, the biggest thing is I feel like guys like me and you and probably a lot of your listeners, right? We know in theory, it's not me against you. It's me against me yesterday. Right. Right. That's really our sport. Now that being said, if I go run on the boardwalk right now and there's a guy or girl that I can't pass 10 yards in front of me for a mile or two, it will drive me crazy. (laughs) Right. I love the idea of it. But we're, human, we're a competitive human beings, right? Mm. So, of course, you're benching 50-pound dumbbells. You look at the guy in bed, he's got 55s, and you're like, I got to get to the 55s. But I think, and I think there's a place for that kind of competition. There definitely is. That can be a good thing. If, if, if harnessed and done safely and properly, competing with your friends, your training partners, other people at races, that's not a, a terrible thing. It's bad when it gets safe and when it gets unsafe and mm. when people start hurting themselves, trying to do things they have no business doing to compete with other people. When in reality, if you can, if you can just keep it that I couldn't do any push-ups yesterday, today I can do two, tomorrow I might be able to do four. That's the kind of progress we want to make, right? Um, and I think then once you get you're good at everything and you got a training partner that you like working with, you got some people you know you're going to compete with, then's maybe the time to see how you stack up against other people. But that might be six months, a year down the line from your first time in the gym. Yeah, it's such a nice distinction. It's it's something I often need reminding of as well. In in so many areas of my life, is is you know as inspiring as it might be to try and catch that lady ten meters ahead of you on the uh, on the boardwalk. The competition should really, in in you know, in its essence, just be against ourselves. So it's nice as just a general reminder to to have that when you're trying to improve your running as well. Because there's always, I mean, it doesn't take long to see that there's always someone who's on the rise like yeah you, i've been talking a lot about an australian athlete i'm not sure how familiar you are with the aussie athletes but we've had uh Stuart mcswain at the top of his game for the you know the last four or five years specifically and last year ran a mile time of 348 and we thought man this guy's this this record's going to stand forever and then just uh you know a week and a half ago we we already see ollie Hoare, another guy come out and run 347 which you know for australians it's it's in, i think there's only two or three australians who have ever run under 350 so it was kind of mind-blowing and it's interesting how that it just goes all the way to the top whether you're brand new to the sport or whether you're the you know the best of the best fighting for an olympic gold medal there's always someone that you're going to have to wrestle with so i i really relate to the idea of uh you know just trying to compete against yourself to to make that improvement yeah i think especially at the early phase of the game it's got to be you versus you i really believe that right now, when you take some steps, like the, the world class, even the collegiate level, or you know, competitive—it's it, it, a competitive field. It should be competitive, um, but I think early on, you try to be beating the you you were yesterday until you're really good at everything you're trying to do. Then you kind of see how you do against other people. You know what I mean? Yeah. The advice I was, not advice. The thing I say to like, new runners all the time: if you run a three a three hour marathon, put you in like, the middle of the pack of most races, right? There's people that run two hour, two and a half hour marathons that you're not even on the radar. Like they're done having a snack in a massage by the time you finish the finish line. But there's like 2000 people behind you that would kill to run a 3000, a three minute, a three hour marathon. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the kind of perspective you got to have. If you're, you, and the other, one thing I really fell in love with is resistant training. Somebody spent the la- my whole career involved in competitive sports in the United States is if you play a basketball game, 
and you lose by 40 points, you're kind of a loser that day. You can't say you did many things well, right? If you run a marathon and you were dead last, the last person to finish the, finish the race, you still ran a marathon that day. That's a good day in your life. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I really got into that. I was like, oh, it, it's no matter how I finished today, I still did something. I did something I'm going to remember forever. And that's, there's a very good thing about that. I, I, I really fell in love with that one little aspect of endurance sports that other things I participated in just didn't, didn't have, not the way they worked. Yeah, man. No, it's a really good point. It's such a good point. Dude, I've just, uh, I'm about to take a, a wild jump here, but it's something that just came into my mind. That I didn't want to forget to ask it. Um, and also something that is really interesting speaking to athletes, especially at the elite level. I've spoken, I've asked a lot of elite athletes this question just to find out their, their own preference. And, and that is um, obviously during the week. So an elite athlete's training at least seven times a week for running, probably, probably 10 to 12, doubling up a couple of times a day. And on some of those doubles, they're, they're going out and doing the strength work. And what's interesting to me, speaking to Ryan Gregson, the, the former Australian 1,500-meter record holder, was, I, I mean, I think I've attributed this right, he liked to go out and just do the heavy lifting on the same day as the hard sessions. And that blew my mind because I was the opposite when I trained. I liked to do any hard body weight work. I wasn't in the gym much, which is, you know, another conversation for another day. But uh on the days that I was doing the, the harder work, uh, you know, in the strength routine, I wasn't doing my hard running sessions. So what I found interesting was to hear a bloke at that level who, who is structuring his running like that. Do you have a preference with the athletes that you're working with around how they structure that hard, uh, you know, workout that might produce a bit of the, the, the muscle soreness to take into a session or, or what's your opinion on that? In, in general, right. So let's say we're going to race on Saturday of the, of whatever week we're talking about. I think we should do our harder resistance day on Monday or Tuesday, right? And then about Thursday, do a resistance session that we're getting the body going a little bit. We're firing some muscles, but it's a lot of mobility, a lot of core, a lot of foam rolling, a lot of feel better for Saturday type lifting, right? Mm -hmm. So for in America, we'll call it our cross country season, which is the fall. I mean, we're racing every Saturday for a couple of months in a row, right? I think that's the way I would personally want to break that down. That being said, I think once you get to a person like the guys you're talking about, men and women that have been competing at a high level for, for years and close to a decade, I think you got to kind of defer to them because they know their body better than I know their body, right? Mm -hmm. so you got a guy that wants to do the heavy run on, let's say, Tuesday, the long run on a Tuesday, intense run on Tuesday, with the lifting session that day, so they got three or four days to recover. I don't think that's wrong. That would have been my preference based on my body and the way I like to train. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily recommend somebody that, that knows their body to not do that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, do you think at the level I deal with runners that are collegiate and younger, I would make some, I would make the suggestions and why I think my plan of doing that, that week of the heavier day on Monday or Tuesday, lighter day on Thursday, take Friday off and show up on Saturday works. But if they tried a couple of times with dead set against it, I'd find a way to work within their parameters and, and make it work for them around that schedule. Yeah, I really like that. I often say with the training programs that I, I write, I like them to be written in pencil so that they can be rubbed out and adjusted. And because there's nothing worse than you know having someone tell you that the science supports whatever it is that you're saying, but then they go out in their personal experience, they just feel horrible and flat. And you know, so obviously the uh, the average or the generalization might it's a generalization for a reason. So I, I like that. So you've got the idea, and then you work with the athlete to to make sure they're confident and comfortable with the actual uh, training structure structure you're trying to implement. Exactly. I'm going to give you a tell. I, I look at it like almost like it's a, uh, like a restaurant meal. Here's the way I'd like to serve it to you. But if you say you don't want onions, we're not going to fight about it. We're going to fight <laughs> what you, want, you know what I mean? Yeah.
<laughs> That's really nice. I like the way you put it. Are you only working with athletes face-to-face or because a lot of our listeners are also, I think the most listeners are based in Australia and then I think it's UK, then the US. So I can imagine there'd be plenty of people out there who'd be interested to tap into the brains of someone like you. I know you've got your book. Have you got any online resources, like anything that people can tap into or, or personal coaching or? Sure. Well, actually, the, we have a book that's available worldwide, Finish Wrong, Resistance Training for Endurance Athletes. It's at Barnes & Noble. It's on Amazon. Anywhere you get books. Um, and our Instagram is finish underscore strong underscore book. And with that being said, you know, if you follow us, we obviously we do a lot of stuff to promote the book. I can't wait to post about this podcast. But we do put training information up there every couple of days too, right? Um, so we put body weight workouts. You don't have access to a gym. We'll put just ideas of nutrition stuff up there. Um trying to keep people engaged and give them information they can use whether or not they have the book itself or not. Um, that being said, I'm completely open to doing online stuff with people, but I'm just very busy with in-person clients now in the U S but that's, I want, I'm completely open to seeing some people online. I just haven't really had the time to do it in the last couple of months. Yeah, no, nah, awesome, man. Well, what I'll do, I just didn't want to bombard you, but I'll, I'll put a couple of links in the description to this episode. So anyone who, you know, might get your book and want to hear a bit more, I'll put links to your books as well. So anyone listening who wants to check that out, just uh, have a look in the show description and um, I'll have a link there for you to for, for you to check it all out. Um, what was I going to ask you? I had a question right at the tip of my tongue, but I can't quite remember. Uh, we've spoken about the delay. Yeah, I like that idea of the individual, the, just to echo what we were saying before, the, the individualized approach, because I think so often when it comes to all forms of training, people can get very caught up in, um, you know, that black and white thinking, that black and white approach is like, all right, this is what's written down. This is what has to happen. But uh, so often I'll see people take that mindset. And you said it earlier, more running doesn't necessarily lead to uh, faster running times. And, and, and actually quite the contrary, sometimes can lead to plateaus and, fatigue and performance so i think that's a, a really nice takeaway um is there any other common mistakes that you're seeing with athletes who are starting a gym routine who uh, apart from their their movements and things which we've covered uh you know are really holding them back in their progress uh, in the strength room i i think uh, the other thing i would say is kind of it's a both end of the spectrum problem you see some people that want to jump in with both feet and go 100 miles an hour at the gym right and their bodies may be ready for 50 miles an hour and they mm. hurt themselves overtrain or deal with too much soreness to keep getting better right and then you deal with people that are way too afraid to put some weight on the bar for lack of a better term right <laughs> you deal with people that are okay with i'll go to the gym for an hour but i'm gonna use two and a half pound dumbbells i'm gonna use only the light resistance bands and crunches and call it a day <laughs> you're, you're trying, you're putting some effort in, but eventually you got to pick up the five pound dumbbells, right? Mm -hmm. Eventually you got to get the heavy resistance bands to, to get any kind of training stimulus to affect your body. So I think you got to just be, be very smart about who you are and what shape your body is in right now and progress from there. I just see too many people thinking they're way ahead of where they should be, right? And too many people not realizing how far along they are. And both are probably equally as detrimental to your progress, right? Um, lifting weights and hurting yourself and failing on reps is a very bad thing to your endurance career. And then not lifting enough weight and just wasting your time in a gym is also a detriment to your endurance running career. So the biggest thing, and it, it's a weird, it's always weird to me. I always make a joke. It, you see these endurance athletes that will run 40 miles uphill in pouring rain. And then they're terrified of a lat pull-down machine, <laughs> right? But then you, you also see people that want to, that they go in a gym the first time and want to lift like an Olympic weightlifter. And it's like, you might get there, 
But if you if you try that today, you're going home in an ambulance. So let's mm-hmm. figure out a way to get you there over time and just kind of be realistic about your body and where you are right now and start your training from there and continue to try to level up, but you got to be realistic about who you are right now. Yeah, man, my next question is a bit of a, a, a bit of a selfish one because I'm, I'm going to the gym this afternoon and I'm a bit of a culprit, I'm going to be honest, of just getting there and doing a very, very tiny warm-up. Maybe just, you know, with the exercise that I'm about to do, I'll do a lighter rep and then I'll get into some heavier reps and just call that a warm-up, which I know anyone in the uh, the strength conditioning team would go, Tice, there's a lot of room that we can uh, we can work with here. What is a generalized or what does a rough warm-up routine look like for someone in the gym? Say if I'm going in there and I'm, um, you know, working on upper body or, you know, feel free to, to change whatever it is to, to suit what it is that you speak about. But um, I was going like, to say, yeah, sorry, no, go on. I was going to say, I think you, you change your warm up based on what you're trying to accomplish that day a little bit. Right. Yeah. But I think there's two ways to look at a warm up. One is I just want to get sweat and raise my core body temperature, get my body ready to lift. Right. And that, that's an okay thing. You can do that. I won't hate on that. I think another way to look at it, which I like a little better is, my quote unquote warm up is more of a movement prep, address my deficiencies, mobility prep kind of day, kind of exercise than just getting warmed up, right? Mm. So I think we're going to start with some kind of generalized warm up to raise our core body temperature, raise our respiration rate, and raise our heart rate. We could jump on an exercise bike. We could jog a couple laps around the outside of the gym. We could do some jumping jacks. I think any of that's jump rope. I think any of that's good, right? Once we get sweating a little bit, then I think I'm going to look at what do I need to get better at? And those are the dynamic warm-up exercises I'm going to focus on, right? So if I'm having trouble doing a squat, I'm going to do 10 or 15 perfect body weight squats. Take my time. Hips back first. Weights on my heels. Get chest up, eyes up, and get good at that, right? If I'm struggling with lunges, I'm going to do my body weight lunges and make sure every rep is close to perfect as possible. If I know I have tight glutes and hamstrings, I might do some inchworms or some mountain climber stretches or whatever I kind of need that day. If I know I'm going to go hard on my upper body, maybe it's arm circles and a pec stretch and, and some lat movements and kind of, you know, some yoga type stretch for my upper body and get those move muscles activated and those joints moving through a full range of motion before I go and tax those same joints and muscles with a barbell, dumbbell, kettlebell machine, whatever it might be. But I think the most important thing on a warm up is to kind of Think of it more of a time is how do I warm my body up to train while addressing the weaknesses and deficiencies I know I have, right? Yeah. It might, if you, say, say you struggle with hip mobility, but the only hip mobility, quote unquote, stuff you do is in a squat rack or on a leg press machine or with heavy dumbbells. Well, you're resisting that and getting stronger, but you're not necessarily addressing the mobility issue that might be causing pain, prolonged recovery times, and poor movement when you're running. So I think the best thing to do is kind of individualize your warm-up enough that you're hitting the things you know you need to hit before you go and tax those muscles with some heavy resistance. That's nice. So it's a focus on not only making sure that the right areas of your body are warmed up, but also the technical element of that movement has, has been refined and addressed because, uh, yeah, that's a mistake that even I can see now because I've I've been around gyms and strength routines enough to be able to recognize when a movement's, you know, not looking at probably what it should look like. So just, uh, you know, forgetting about the the increase in the weight before you get the technique and the actual, uh, uh, you know, the actual muscles that you're going to be focused on warmed up. Definitely. Yeah, no, awesome, man. Well, dude, um, I, I wanted to thank you so much for, for coming on. I, I told you 45 minutes, we've done 45 minutes. I, you're the kind of guy I could talk to all afternoon. And I'm sure we could talk all afternoon, but I, I'm sure there's plenty to do in San Jose on a, froze, uh, a Friday afternoon. So 
man, thanks so much for making the time to come on. As I said, I'll, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes for, for all the things that we've mentioned here. So anyone listening, uh, make sure you check that out and, uh, and get in touch if you need anything from, from Angelo. Hey, man, this was great. It was a super fun conversation. Glad we got to catch up finally. If your listeners want to reach out, it's Angelo, A-N-G-E-L-O dot gingerelli, G-I-N-G-E-R-E-L-L-I at gmail.com. And on Instagram, it's at finish underscore strong underscore book. Uh, DM, email, comment, whatever you want to do. But I really appreciate the time, and I'd love to hear from some of your listeners over in Australia. Awesome, brother. Thanks again, man. I'll see you later. See you, everybody. See you, everybody.